from the same station that invented radio with subtitles. This is the elixir of eternal youth, a worldly story told by a group of travellers, a history of Brisbane, Australia and the world. This is Radio in Colour. A special documentary series to celebrate four decades of Brisbane's oldest youth radio station. You're tuned in to 4ZZZ. This is Radio in Colour. In our episode today, we'll hear about popular pastimes in the age before the internet. It's all fun and analogue games before we move on to songs, and more specifically, to the story behind the song, From Little Things, Big Things Grow. This third episode of Radio in Colour finishes on a faraway note, with stories and recordings of people who have been travelling the hippie trail from Australia overland to Europe, via Asia and the Middle East since the 1970s. 1975. It was the year Triple Z first went to air as Australia's first FM community radio station. The first song broadcast was Won't Get Fooled Again by The Who. 1975 also marks the release of Tommy, the film based on The Who's rock opera of the same name that told the story of a deaf, mute and blind kid who played a mean pinball. Before Space Invaders arrived in 1978 and brought with it the golden age of arcade gaming, pinball was the amusement of choice for many a youngster. Pinball actually has its origins in a 19th century game called Bagatelle, which is itself derived from billiards. Last weekend, I sat down with Z announcer Riff Randall and former Triple Z demo host Shell McIntyre at the Brisbane Masters IFPA Pinball Tournament for a chat about the history and culture of pinball. Bagatelle was around in the early 19th century, and then improvements in Bagatelle came along, which is early pinball machines, basically, which meant you'd actually have pins, a tilted thing where you'd shoot the the ball up, but there were no flippers on it. Flippers came along in 1947. That's when the original sort of pinball machine, the Humpty Dumpty, got lead machine where they actually put uh, flippers on the side of improvements of Bagatelle, and that was that's kind of modern pinball as we know it. Without the flippers, it was pretty much just a matter of, of luck, of just using the plunger to get the silver ball to come down and to basically wind up in pins. And see, guys used to move the machines about because that then could alter where the ball went, which is where the whole tilt feature came into play. So. Pinball itself was quite popular in the 30s and the Great Depression, but of course once World War II came along, all the manufacturers had to sort of stop and make armaments and all sort of jazz. Because of course um, there were German manufacturers of pinball machines as well, I believe Bally is. So that's, uh, it affected the American manufacturers and the German manufacturers. But after post-World War II it uh, became popular again because they could go back to making pinball machines. Yeah, And 1947 of course being the year that, that yeah, that basically they put the flippers on, that's a, that's a massive improvement. That's like light years in, in the evolution of the game. In about 1976 was when they first started using uh, microchips and circuit boards in pinball. Prior to that, they were all electromechanical, so it's like digital versus analog. And what had happened is that because it was analog previously, the machine couldn't keep up with the amount of because you'd had a lot of more bumper flippers and slingshots and all sort of jazz. So the actual scoring couldn't keep up with what was going on in, on the playboard. So 
when they brought out digital scoring, that could easily keep a track of everything that was happening on the playboard. Prior to that in 1973, Pong was introduced and that was the first sort of commercial video game. And so it, it contributed to that, that mid to late 70s era of basically video games just taking over the world and a bit of a starting the demise for the, the original sort of 70s pinball gaming. So it helped pinball gaming in the one sense, and on the other hand, it also contributed to its demise. In 84 was when a lot of the pinball manufacturers kind of just closed their doors. I think Space Invaders introduced about 1977, and that was a massive thing. By 1979, they'd put out Player One with the single Space Invaders and all that sort of stuff. Forced national coin shortage in Japan, all that sort of jazz. So it was uh, quite a large uh, impact on, the, I guess, the pinball gaming. It was gaming. a big impact on me, actually, because I remember when the, the local kind of, I think it was a fish and chip shop, had pinball machines for ages, and then suddenly the pinball machines were gone. It was a damn Space Invaders machine. <laughs> and, you know, what could we do? That was just about it in town, really, at the time. But a lot of places also still had a pinball machine and a an arcade machine sort of thing. And also in the early 80s, home consoles had been invented as well. So the, the Atari 2600 was a massive uh, thing. It's, it was kind of like the internet nowadays. You know, kids can either go out and see bands or they can stay at home and watch it on their computers. And so I think with, with gaming, what had happened, pinball to Space Invaders to then like the, the, the home console, I think was the what really did do, do damage to both pinball and arcade games as such, and arcades themselves. I remember being here in Brisbane and that was when, because I was born in 73, so like when I was about six or seven, I was obsessed with video games. It was just, you know, you couldn't do enough to get to the local store and get your 20 cent pieces. And, but yeah, I was lucky enough to get an Atari 2600 as a kid. And that was big, that was big time, you know, like you'd invite your mates over and it was, it was on for young and old. But I still played arcade games as well at the same time, so. And I do know that like even in the, mid to late 80s in Brisbane itself, um, there were still a couple of good time, like time zone was still around, all the games were 20 cents. A lot of the nightclubs yeah. had pinball machines, Sight yeah. down the valley had like three machines going. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know what, that's because pokies weren't introduced, pokies were outlawed until 1992 in Brisbane, so I assume that probably contributed to all the venues having pinball and, poke, uh, pinball and arcade machines once pokies introduced because of course we make a shitload more money on poker machines. Things were stepping up, like clubs were trying to introduce more things, more things for people to play with. It was the start of that era of yeah. let's have everything. Can I ask each of you guys which particular machines you have the fondest memories of? Oh man, see I, I sort of dipped into pinball maybe three times. Like in the 70s I was pretty young, getting busted at the corner store as a little girl, playing pinball with the big blokes, you know, and I was just there for the game. Yeah, back at that time, Mata Hari, Lost World, it was, you know, they were great machines to play. I still like to play those machines. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, through the 90s, clubbing was great in Brisbane. A lot of machines around. Fishtails was great. Fishtails. I, used, I used to play mousing around. Fishtails would be mine, you mentioned. Huh. When I was, I uh, left Brisbane, wound up in Sydney in the mid to late 90s. And we used to drink at the Excelsior, um, which is where Radio Birdman played their first gig. And there was a machine there called Fishtails, and that fucking machine rules. What do you guys think it is about the game of pinball that has contributed to its enduring legacy? It's uh, it's the classic man versus machine, but when you're playing video games, it's it, there's a set pattern. When you're playing Galaga or Space Invaders, it's always a set pattern. With pinball, anything could happen. You can have a fantastic, you can have your best game on the on one machine, a machine that you love, and then you can have your worst game. It's just there's it's completely unpredictable, and you've there's an element of skill, there's an element of luck. I don't know. It's kind of got everything. 
culturally speaking, has there ever been a negative association with people who play pinball? Oh, hell yeah. Greasers and things like that, you know, hanging around, <laughs> you know, hanging around um, shops, drinking their sodas or whatever. <laughs> they knew how to party. You know, so yeah, I think there was that element, especially like um, I know that as a young girl, my parents really didn't even let me go to those places. Like even at Roochidor, I used to have to sneak in there and I'd get busted there too, you know. So, you know, really I didn't get in that much trouble, so I figured they must have realised that I was into it and I was going to keep doing it. So, But yeah, they were pretty seedy places, you know, uh, delinquents hanging around, you know. That's what they say about bimbo delinquent youth. The tilting aspect, is that round upon or was it once acceptable to tilt? What's the deal there? It depends on the player. Um, I know that the real good players, they do like to tilt a lot um, and do get a lot out of their tilting. They like to tilt, but I think there's a lot in pinball where you're actually kind of nudging the machine to keep the ball in play because that's the aim of the game, you know, yeah. so, and as a result of that nudging and pushing and, you know, trying to save balls, yeah, you can tilt and you can adjust the tilt settings, you know, so some people will take them off. Go hard, you know? Space Invaders was really the game that changed everything for arcade gaming. Mm. What do you think it is about the game of Space Invaders that made it so popular? Sci-fi in the 70s was huge. And um, you know, of course your Star Wars and Space Invaders goes hand in hand. So, and yeah. it, is, it is quite a really challenging game still. So just to give a further impression of how popular it was, uh, it netted $500 million, whereas the Star Wars film only made 486 million. <laughs> that's yeah. a great stat. That's massive. And that's back in the like the late 70s. That's yeah. a lot of coin. And yeah. that's all in 20 cent. Well, that would be in quarters of 20 cent. Exactly. Yeah. Adjusted for inflation, the number is even larger, I believe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that'd be like. Yes. That's a lot of coin. Yeah. Once Space Invaders was out, it kind of opened the floodgates for other arcade games for people to play once they'd got their fill of Space Invaders, yep. like uh, Asteroids. Yes. Pac-Man. Pac-Man was, was massive. Yeah, that, that was something you couldn't get enough of because it was just genius. There was no fire button in Pac-Man. And, uh, you know, it was a very, very simple concept. It, you know, a child could play it, an adult could play it. And, uh, yeah, no, that, that was awesome. That, that whole era of late 70s, early 80s was massive for, for gaming. All your Pac-Mans, Donkey Kongs, all the very simple 8-bit games came out in that era. Um, I think there's well over about a thousand titles that came out. They all produced and made their way out here, and they were everywhere. You know, you could you could walk to the corner store; they were there. You could go to um, you know roller skating rinks were big back in those days, and they were always there. Pit in bowling, even at like the airport or laundromats, and there was there were designated little areas. Even I know, like say, I used to go to Red Hill skater in with my sister, and she'd give me a dollar, and I wouldn't skate; I'd just play video games. And even next door to that. There was just a little room, there was no one attending it, but there was another half a dozen video games in the actual shop next door that no one sort of attended, it just was a shop of video games in it. And 
Same thing, you get a lot of that down the coast with Grundies and these little arcade, like little sort of walk-through sort of dolphin arcades here and everywhere, and you'd have a whole bunch of uh, half a dozen machines in there as well. Shigeru Miyamoto, who was the Japanese creator of the Mario games, right. he credits seeing Space Invaders as his motivator for wanting to make video games. So he then went on to make Donkey Kong, Fantastic. which was the very first platform game, I believe. Right, yep. Which, of course, as we know, is just a staple genre it's huge yes. to have invented that genre itself is a massive achievement Definitely. and also donkey kong was the first appearance mm -hmm. of a character called mario mario was too actually in fact um jump man was his original name and he was the the guy trying to rescue the chishila from donkey kong and he became mario and of course you know he had a brother called luigi <laughs> and the rest is, as i say is history yeah. arcade boom was happening at the same time that there was also a home console boom home consoles were huge obviously um, the, the Atari 2600 was the, the, the space invaders of that era uh, but uh, it turns out in 1967 a TV engineer called Ralph Bayer created a game system that would play on an existing television set um, he was working for Sanders Associates at the time and he called that prototype the brown box and that was in 1967. In 1972, Magnavox bought the technology and produced the Magnavox Odyssey. And that was probably the first real commercially successful home video game console. And they sold between 100 to 200,000 units by the mid 70s of that one. Cost 100 bucks, so 1972 money, that's a fair bit of coin. And it had 12 games that came with it, and you got things like dice and play money and all that sort of jazz. But the best thing about it, it had plastic overlays which the players taped to the TV, so yeah, for mazes and courses and all that sort of stuff. So that's quite an interesting thing to note. 1977 Atari brought out the video computer system, the VCS, um, and that was that was their version of the home console system. Um, they, they fiddled about and did a bit of this, but they came up with 2600 in 1982, and that was the one that set the world on fire and sold 30 million units. And for anyone that had an Atari, they were very, very popular. <laughs> you had a lot of mates if you had an Atari. I know, I used to go and hang out with a bloke up the road. He had an Atari, and uh, we were always playing Pac-Man and Space Invaders on that until I got my own one, and oh, man, that was, that was exciting times. Yes. Yeah. was a special feature about gaming in Brisbane in decades past, made for Radio in Colour by Ray Morgan from Z Games. What you'll hear next is proof positive that video games can help you make friends and influence people the world over. Or, in any event, that's what they were able to do in the 80s and the 90s. We asked Jawad from our production team to talk about growing up in Quetta in Pakistan and the fun he's had playing console games. Uh, 
I do remember like um, going to the video game arcade and uh, giving your money and you just playing like for half hour something then again your money is finished then you are thinking again how should I get some more money to play and you don't have money then you have to wait for another day to come back to play again so then there was some video games uh, that you could play at your home I do remember I bought one old one I don't I don't remember the name but it was like the ones that we use cartridges for the gate to play the game I do remember like collecting money uh, to buy cartridges and uh, exchanging cartridges with my friends like okay I played this one and uh, you played that one so let's exchange the cartridges and borrow the cartridge from your friends and sometimes like I borrow a cartridge from my friend and I gave it to my friend so it was like on the third or fourth hand the person is playing and um, I do remember the other company of game by the name of Sega so it was a better company with the better games and um, I collected money for that game and I was like every time I used to say my parents please buy a Sega for me and they did and I, I gave some of my money that I, that I collected for the game I remember that they had a gun a laser gun in which you shoot the ducks that they are flying on the screen so if you misses the ducks so there was a dog who was laughing at you that you missed it and I remember like um, I was playing the game and my sister was insisting to give him the controls to play and I was just I was keep playing and not letting her to play and she became very angry and she broke the video game and I was like crying a lot that oh she broke my video game and it was very expensive at that time and I do remember like friends are coming to your home because you have a video game and they are sitting with you they are playing with you and like you are with your friends and there are only two controls so I do remember like it was a rule loser have to leave so if uh, you are playing with other ones so usually we used to play the fight games i mean the karate fight games and boxing games so the person who loses so he used to give the control to other one and just waiting for your turn again so if you are a good player and you are winning again and again so it means just playing game and each round the new person is coming and playing with you uh, it was a good time. We used to connect it with each other, even maybe for cottages, going to your friends, visiting your friends, asking them for new cottages. Sometimes two friends are saving money together, then buying one cottage. And okay, you are going to play first. When you finish, then give it to me back. So it was a great time playing games without internet. It was really good fun. I, I remember and miss those days. Yeah.
That song you just heard was Computer Games by MySex, which made it to number 84 in the Hot 100 back in 1980. We're going back in time now with the next story, thousands of years in fact, to learn about the story of the Gurijindi people of the Northern Territory, whose ancestral lands were finally returned to them in 1975, and whose story is behind that well-known song by Brisbane's own Kev Carmody and Paul Kelly from Little Things, Big Things Grow, which was released in 1991. And there's a bonus track too, about how sand can bring people together in Australia and Sudan. Stay tuned to 4ZZZ. I want to skip this in one Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we get it spot on. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Gather round, people. I tell you a story, an eight-year-long story. Power and pride, the British Lord Vesting. Vincent Lingari were opposite men on opposite sides. Vesti was fat with money and muscle. Beef was his business, broad was his door. Vincent was lean, spoke very little. He had no bank balance, hard dirt was his floor. From Little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow Gurinji were working Nothing but rations Once they had gathered the wealth of the land Daily depression got tighter and tighter Gurinji decided they must make a stand. They picked up their swags, started off walking at Waddy Creek. They sat themselves down. Now it don't sound like much, but it sure got tongues talking back at the homestead and then in the town. From little things, big things grow. I'll double your wages Seven quid a week you have in your hand Vincent said, uh-uh, we're not talking about wages We're sitting right here till we get our lane Vestiment road, vestiment thunder You don't stand a chance of a cinder in snow Vincent, if we fall, others are rising from little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. Then Vincent Lingyari, he boarded an airplane, landed in Sydney, big city lights. Daily he went round, softly speaking his story. All kinds of men from all walks of life. Vincent sat down with every politicians. 
This affair they told him It's a matter of state Let us sort it out Why are people hungry? Vincent said no thanks We know how to wait From little things Big things grow Then Vincent Lignari returned in an airplane back to his country once more to sit down. He told his people, let the stars keep on turning. We have friends in the south, in the cities and towns. Eight years went by, eight long years of waiting to when their tall stranger appeared in the land. He came with lawyers, came with great ceremony, through Vincent's fingers, poured a handful of sand. From little things, big things grow, from little things, big things grow. That was the story of Vincent Langari. This is the story of something much more Of power and privilege cannot move a people Know where they stand and they stand in their law Bo Spiram, I'm uh, Gamilaray, Kuma and Marawari. All three of those nations are um, emu dreaming nations. Also, Gamilaray and uh, Marawari are both northern New South Wales, southern Queensland, and Kuma is uh, southern Queensland and northern New South Wales, um, like I was saying, emu dreamer nations. I've uh, lived in Brisbane since 97. I was born in Sydney. Uh, in Western Sydney. My parents are both from Northern New South Wales and Western New South Wales. I'm involved with the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereignty Embassy in Musgrave Park and also with uh, Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. And all we're trying to do is you know, give an alternative message to our people. I guess the part of the song, I think it's Kev singing it. He says, Then Vincent Lingiari boards an aeroplane, landed in Sydney, big city of lights. And daily he went around, softly speaking his story to all kinds of men from all walks of life. And Vincent sat down with big politicians. This, uh, <clears throat> this affair, they told him, is a matter of state. Let us sort it out. Your people are hungry. And Vincent said, no thanks. We know how to wait. That part there where he says, no thanks, you know, like we know how to wait. That's the part that signifies... You know, someone to be a hero or a freedom fighter, you know that, that there says you know his people's been working you know for minimum wage for nothing, on the cattle station. We can wait. You know it says we've been here sixty thousand years plus. 
you know, not getting treated as bad. But what that says is we can wait some more. All we got is time. And that's what they did. And essentially, you know, at the end of the song, at the end of that story, they get their land back. What he signified was a hero. And not just for the Gurindji people, uh, but for, you know, a lot of our people, you know, all around this country, you know, and there's stories of people just like Vincent. From all walks of life. Vincent sat down with big politicians. This affair, they told him, it's a matter of state. Let us sort it out. Why are people hungry? Vincent said, no thanks. We know how to wait. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. Then Vincent Lignari returned in an airplane back to his country. Once more to sit down. The song from Little Things Big Things Grow was written in 1980s by Paul Kelly and Kef Comedy. It is basically a narration of the historical events of the land rights dispute between Vince Lignari and Lord Vesti, which led to a nationwide campaign of indigenous land rights. something so much more a power and privilege cannot move a people who know where they stand and stand in the law from little things big things grow from little things big things grow from little things big things grow from little things big things all over this country that were freedom fighters, that were heroes. I think, you know, that's the thing that we've got to remember is that amongst all the bad stuff that we deal with, if we can pick up a book or if we know how to research properly, we can find people like Vincent. You know, he might be gone, but his story's still with us. I discovered it when I was older, like the meaning behind the song, but I always knew the song. Uh, growing up and, you know, would always, you know, sing the words and that thing. And then, yeah, when I was older and um, had a bit more of understanding on how to ask questions about, you know, the meaning behind uh, that song, some elders told me, you know, the significance behind the song and and also, you know, like what the mob did when they walked off, off, off uh, Wave Hill. A lot of the times with our people, the Aboriginal people here, we never get to hear about um, our side of the story. It's always, you know, Aboriginal people are seen many different ways within this country. We're seen as troublemakers, we're seen as 
pedophiles, we're seen as drug addicts, we're seen as alcoholics, we're seen as, you know, um, women bashers, you know, like, um, like, like that's what Aboriginal people are seen and are perceived to be by, um, by people who don't know Aboriginal people. And, and that's been perceived, you know, in media and by mainstream Australia. You know, so when we actually tell our story from an Aboriginal perspective, it signifies a platform of understanding of where, you know, non, non-Indigenous peoples can actually start to understand our point of view. Well, I guess initially what land rights is about is about, you know, Aboriginal people looking for self-determination, being self-sufficient, taking control of their own affairs. What was happening was, you know, they were getting paid poorly, sometimes not getting paid at all. So essentially the walk-off was always our land rights and about moving forward, self-determination for our people. It's a very, very important time within the land rights movement. The early 70s, when the 10 Embassy went up in Canberra, after the uh, Freedom Rides in the 60s, victories for Aboriginal people back then, for our people, were um, far and in between. And then something you know, significant as you know, these mob back in NT, getting their land handed back to them, signified a very big win for us. Personally, what I think is, yeah, I think it was mainly a political gain because a lot of the Aboriginal people on the ground and um, I was a part of the walk-off already won. For a movement to be successful, the struggling people must uphold their rights and beliefs are within their movement or within what they're doing. The most well-meaning white people can sort of hold us back within our struggle because what we need to be doing is uplifting ourselves and inspiring ourselves. Vesti was fat, full of money and muscle. Beef was his business, broad was his door. Vincent was lean, he spoke very little. He had no bank balance, hard dirt was his floor. Little things, big things grow. Gringy were working for nothing but rations When once they had gathered the wealth of the land And daily the pressures got tighter and tighter Gringy decided they must make a stand When Golf Whitland poured the sun into Lingyari's hand It struck me as a powerful act Where I come from Pouring sun into someone's hand or taking some sand into your hands is very meaningful. A child returned home to Sudan after a long time away might take a handful of sand and smell it or bow and kiss the ground. People might also use sand to curse someone who has rejected you after you ask them for help. It is interesting to me how the same thing, sand or earth, is used in the two cultures to bring people together. Whether it is reconciling politics or reconciling families, sand is used in a similar way here and there. The story of Lingyari and Whitlam's reminds me of what happened when my grandfather died. He was sick for a long time. Often he was asking my mother to bring the kids to see him because he thought he was going to die soon. 
This went on for a long time, maybe a couple of years. The day before he died, he asked my mother to see his grandchildren, but she didn't do it. When he was going to be buried, they could not fit him in his grave. They readjusted their measurement three times, but he still didn't fit. My grandfather's sister said he died upset with my mother. Then his sister took some water and sand and sprinkled it on the grave, telling him not to be upset, that my mother couldn't have known he was dying. Afterward, they were able to fit him in the grave with plenty of space around his body. The story of Liniari reminds me of the situation back in Sudan. The South Sudanese people are the indigenous people of the country. The Arab first came as traders many centuries ago, but over time they took over. The Arabs brought their own religion and system of government. Until they came, the indigenous people had organized tribes ruled by chiefs, but the Arabs made them adapt their system and ruled over them. Even with democracy in the 20th century, all the presidents of Sudan were from an Arab background. Gather round people, I tell you a story, an eight-year-long story, power and pride, the British Lord Festy, the Vincent Lingari, for opposite men on opposite sides. In this episode about the culture, values and life of young people in the 1970s and 1980s, we're travelling far and wide from the cornerstones of Brisbane to the lounge rooms of Quetta and now onwards from the Northern Territory to Indonesia and to Northern Pakistan. You're tuned in to Radio in Colour, a special documentary series to celebrate 40 years of Radio 4 Triple Z. See them on Saturday floating on air Painting their toenails and washing their hair Maybe tonight it'll happen Girls in our town, they leave school at 15 Work at the counter or behind the machine And spend The infamous Hippie Trail was the overland route forged through Asia in the early 1970s by young travellers in search of something else, adventure, drugs or spiritual enlightenment. By boat, by train, by bus and by car, the Asia overland route went through Bali, Southeast Asia, India, Nepal, Afghanistan, Iran, Turkey and on to Europe. Ultimately, the experience of the Hippie Trail would influence Australia's relationship with Asia economically, politically and culturally. 
In the next few minutes, you'll hear some of the radio that was produced by these adventurous travellers for broadcasting for Triple Z. You'll hear now from Amanda Bowden, now from Brisbane but originally from Tasmania, who herself travelled in some of the routes of the Hebe Trail. I'm a Tasmanian and um, I've always been really interested in the ways um, people live so I studied anthropology and um, I think my whole life has been a bit of a journey about exploring other people's life ways and um, my, my travels was certainly a bit of a taste. of. I went to Pakistan in about April 1992 and I went because I, I met a fellow traveller when I was travelling through Vietnam and I saw some of his pictures of northern Pakistan and I was just blown away by how beautiful it was. And he also said the people were really friendly. Um, so I immediately <laughs> bought a ticket alone to go to Pakistan. And yes, you do need a visa. And I th- was there for about a month and then I went to India to, to meet my brother, which is another story. And then I came back to Pakistan for another three months, I think it was. Uh, well, I went to the northern areas of Pakistan, um, which I think is now called Gilgit, Baltistan, um, because of the beauty of the place and the friendliness of the people that I had heard about. And I taught English simply because I was asked to. You know, I had this idea, oh, you know, why should people have to learn, you know, colonial language like, like English? But then, you know, I began to realise, well, it's a language... Of, of power and it helps you know people to communicate and learn more about you know the world and globalization and everything. I was really honored to be invited to live with a family in this little village called Husseinabad. So they were um, a Hunza family who spoke a language called Burushaski and they're um, quite culturally uh, distinct. The Burusho people, as I said, they speak a different language, they have different customs, diff- diff- wear different clothes, have a different diet, and, and they live in this incredibly beautiful mountainous area, and they're, they're very well known for their friendliness and their open-mindedness. And as far as I know, they practice Ismaili Islam, uh, and they tend to be very easygoing, but also very protective of... Um, of their families and they were very protective of me. I wasn't allowed to walk alone anywhere. I needed to be accompanied and I was I was treated like a queen, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I remember the names of my, the, the, the especially the women I became quite close to, uh, Nazara and Zesham Fatima. It was the little girl, she must be, she was 11 and full of life and um, is probably 30 or something now. <laughs> Um, I think I lived with that family for two or three months. I've got to say it was a highlight of my life, living with that family and going to that part of the world. And there's types of landscapes that make you burst into song as soon as you come around the corner and see the first mountain and break out into a sweat and you know, <laughs> burst into tears. It's, you know, it's really like a visceral, gut-wrenchingly fantastic experience. <laughs> first things that you notice as a, as a Westerner when you travel to um, a non-Western society is that collectivist 
attitude, you know, the, the, an attitude that um, cares, seems to care anyway, more about community and the well-being of others, accepting others sort of into your fold and sometimes not so concerned with the constraints of time. Whereas, I mean, I know this is a terrible stereotype and generalisation, but Western society does seem very time-bound, very rushed, very individualist, very career-oriented, whereas, you know, the idea of career, for example, can be quite a a foreign concept in some other places and certainly was in, in Hunza in northern Pakistan at that time. People sort of live according to the, the seasons and the lengths of the days and it was um, an agricultural society. Certainly, you know, there were um, locals who had been trained as engineers and teachers and doctors and all of those sorts of things, but they'd always come back to the village and, you know, help at harvest time and things like that. I, I have to say, look, I felt really, really safe and protected in northern Pakistan. And I, and I travelled alone and I bought myself a little um, motorbike, a, a, a Honda Enduro, a two-stroke noisy thing. And because I was a woman travelling alone on a motorbike, which was I was told was a previously unseen phenomenon, um, I was stopped by guards quite a lot. Um, mostly because they were really shocked. <laughs> I figured they wanted to find out what the hell was going on. And then, and at first they'd be really stern and I'd always carry this little backpack around with me and they'd say things like, Madam, are you having a bomb in your bag? <laughs> what kind of weapon are you carrying? And of course, you know, once they realised I wasn't carrying a bomb, um, you know, they'd invite me in for cups of tea. And this is tea that's stewed in these great big pots with lots of milk and salt, actually. And, you know, they'd sit and chat and ask questions about life in Australia while you drank cups of tea with them. Then you'd go on your merry way. It was reaffirming for me the equality or the equalness of all people because, you know, we grew up believing that people with a different colour skin were somehow different or inferior and I already knew that wasn't true because I have a brother and sister adopted from Bangladesh and um, they were just they're just my brother and sister I don't see them any differently because of their their skin color but they were treated quite badly in, in white middle-class Tasmania and I guess I mean there wasn't really the anti-muslim sentiment in Australia that there is that there is now um, you know, about places like Pakistan because it was pre um, September 11 but I think part of my exploration was to, to to understand and to experience for myself the way um, people who practice you know, a, a different religion from my own you know Islam how you know the way they live and the way they are and you know of course I was I wasn't really surprised but it was a very pleasant and happy experience for me. In fact, um, every night for years, I, I used to dream about being in Pakistan. I still do sometimes. And from landscapes that make you want to burst into song to the actual soundscapes of the Hebe Trail, stay tuned to hear a 1979 recording of music from Bali 
that first aired in a 4ZZZ show called East Asian Ear. I don't think you can overestimate the importance of drugs to at least the mythical aspects of the Overland Trail and also the um, physical the experience of the Overland Trail. The focus placed on marijuana and drugs was really astounding. The first Lonely Planet guide across Asia on the Cheap, which was published in 1973, had a section on dope which was longer than the section on food. So we are talking about some very serious um, emphasis placed on drugs. Part of the great Hindu Javanese empire that dissolved in the late 15th century with the spreading of Islam, Bali has since remained in cultural isolation, the one island of Indonesia practically immune to either Islamic or Christian conversion. Even with the relatively recent onslaught of the tourist dollar, the Balinese still prefer to hold firmly to their Hinduist religion and rich cultural heritage in which dance, drama and music have always played a leading part. In this special edition of the Southeast Asian Ear, we're on location in Peliatan, Bali, You'll hear the music of the village gamelans and the sounds of the people as they celebrate Odalan, a three-day temple feast. The stereo perspective of these recordings may be enhanced by listening with headphones. The village of Peleatan is near Abud, in the rice-growing hill country of central Bali. It's set in a true tropical rainforest. In the sunlight, you're surrounded by every shade of tender green. At night, by light of lamp and moon, Peliatan becomes a close jungle of night creatures and human sounds. That sound is kulkulan, the beating of the kulkul. The kulkul is a split hollowed log suspended in a high tower at the temple corner and struck with a heavy stick. Tonight, the kulkul is calling the community for the Odalan, a three-day feast held every seven months to celebrate the founding of the village temple. At Odalan, the temple suddenly blossoms with floral offerings, towers of fruit and sweets, banners, and tall white parasols. As the people file into the temple, they're greeted by the local gamelan orchestra. This music is called Anklang, played by one of the three groups inside the temple. It's used as an atmosphere background to the comings and goings of villagers entering the temple compound. The musicians here are seated on a platform about waist-high. Gamelan is the Indonesian orchestra composed primarily of tuned bronze gongs, metallophones, small cymbals, and hand-beaten drums. It's essentially a percussion orchestra composed of various types of instruments designed to exploit in different ways the resonance of bronze. Great care is taken in mounting the resonant material so that nothing may interfere with the vibration and natural duration of the tones. things for Westerners to understand when first confronting gamelan music is why, since the music involves a number of people playing a number of metallic instruments and gongs, the gamelan is considered a single instrument, rather than a group of instruments. 
this method devalues the importance of the individual musician that jars our Western sensibilities. When listening to the gongs, the smaller, higher pitched of the pair is the male, or gong lanang. The larger, lower pitched is the female gong, gong wadon. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Radio in Colour. This show was recorded at The Edge Studios in the State Library of Queensland, as well as Radios 4EB and 4ZZZ. This episode was produced by me, Carolina Caliaba, and Stephen Rigol. We acknowledge the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, without whom this project would not be possible. Special thanks to our guests today, Ray Morgan from Z Games in 4ZZZ, who interviewed two former Z announcers, Riff Rundle and Michelle McIntyre, about playing video games in corner shops here in Brisbane as they were growing up in the 1970s and 80s. Jawad told the story about video games in Quetta. Bo Spirim from the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy in Musgrave Park, who told us how he came to learn the history behind From Little Things, Big Things Grow as well as DJ Chiki Fufu from Radio and Colour Sound Production Team, who is the voice behind the incredible but true story of the shrinking grandfather. Amanda Bowden, who you heard discussing her experiences living in Pakistan in the 90s. And thanks also to an anonymous announcer from 4ZZZ East Asian Ear Show, who made those field recordings of the Gamelan Orchestra in Bali back in 1979. If you too have long forgotten recordings that deserve a second airing, do get in touch. We are at documentary at 4ZZZ.org.au and we'd love to hear from you.